Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. The Book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the promised land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now, don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in, and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now, remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. Now, the stories of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, they are epic adventures. They're also extremely bloody stories. Either the judge themselves or people who help the judge, they defeat their enemies and deliver the people of Israel. The stories about the next three judges are longer, and they focus in on the character flaws of the judges, which get increasingly worse. So Gideon, he begins pretty well. He's a coward of a man, but he eventually comes to trust that God can save Israel through him. And so he defeats a huge army of Midianites with only 300 men carrying torches and clay pots. But Gideon has a nasty temper, and he murders a bunch of fellow Israelites for not helping him in his battle, and then it all goes downhill from there. He makes an idol from the gold that he won in his battles, and then after he dies, all Israel worships the idol as a god, and the cycle begins again. The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills, and when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story, it shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. 
The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, violent, and arrogant. He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note here. You'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even any of their decisions. God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt leaders, and so work with them he does. This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore, and that's just the leaders. The final section shows Israel as a whole hitting bottom. There are two tragic stories here, and they are not for the faint of heart. They're structured by this key line that gets repeated four times at the close of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first story is about an Israelite named Micah who builds a private temple to an idol, and that gets plundered by a private army sent from the tribe of Dan. So they come and they steal everything, and then they go and burn down the peaceful city of Laish and murder all of its inhabitants. It's a horrifying story. When Israel forgets its God, might makes right. The final story of the book is even worse. It's a shocking tale of sexual abuse and violence, which all leads to Israel's first civil war. It's very disturbing. And that's the point. These stories are meant to serve as a warning. Israel's descent into self-destruction is the result of turning away from the God who loves them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And now Israel needs to be delivered again from themselves. The only glimmer of hope in this story is found in this repeated line in the last part of the book. It actually forms the last sentence of the story. Israel has no king. And so the stage is set for the following books to tell the origins of King David's family, the book of Ruth, and also the origins of kingship itself in Israel, the book of 1 Samuel. But the story of Judges has value as a tragedy. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And that's the book of Judges. So guess where we're going to go today? The book of Judges. Did you, have you ever heard of the book of Judges quite like that before? No, the book of Judges in the Old Testament uh, is really... This is one of those books where I say, you can't make this stuff up. It's better than some of the crazy novels that are on bookshelves today. Um, you want, I won't say an entertaining read, you want to read a tragedy, read the book of Judges. And so today and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at stories from the book of Judges. And one specifically is Deborah's story. Did you see where her narrative came into play in the story there. It was in the pretty good section of Israel's uh, time period in the land after they had come in under Joshua. I want to talk today about Deborah, her basically head of the army by the name of Barak, and no, not Obama. I want to talk about Jael, who was really just a commoner among a different tribe outside of Israel, and uh, Jabin, the king, one of the Canaanite kings of one of the tribes in that area. But before we get there, I want to lay the groundwork for the topic today. It's entitled A Tent Peg, but it's more than just that. I want to ask you a question about learning. Why is it important to learn? That is the rhetorical question I want you to keep in your mind throughout the course of this whole message. There's a uh, gifted preacher by the name of Haddon Robinson who tells a story about a Chinese boy who wanted to learn about this jewel called jade. He went to study with a talented teacher, an artisan, uh, 
in his area. And so when he went to him and he said, hey, will you teach me about jade? I want to know more about it. I want to become a specialist in this. Um, the very first time that he comes to this guy and he says, yeah, I'll do this for you. Come back tomorrow. Well, when he comes back, the old man takes a small clump of jade, unrefined, and he places it in the hand of this young gentleman. And he told him to hold it tight. The old teacher then began to talk about philosophy, about men, about women, the sun, and almost everything under the sun. And after an hour, he took back the stone from his young apprentice, and he sent the boy home. This procedure was repeated week after week after week, with the boy coming in, the old man giving him a piece of uncut jade, and just having him hold it while he talks about any number of subjects not pertaining to jade. And then this youth is starting to get a little frustrated. I'm wasting my time. I'm coming every week. I'm wanting him to teach me about jade, and all he's doing is talking about everything else but. I've been coming here for almost two months now, and I'm not learning anything that I came to learn. But one fateful day, the old man placed a stone in this young man's hand and immediately, he said, this isn't jade. You don't learn by just knowledge of something. You learn by the intimacy of the subject matter. You know they teach counterfeit uh, individuals to learn from counterfeit, to learn a, what a counterfeit dollar bill or 20 or 50 or $100 bill, you know how they teach people to know what a counterfeit is? They, right, they force them to scrutinize the real thing so that when they see a fake, they know it without even batting an eye. Experience is one of the greatest teachers we could ever know. When you know something or someone intimately, you're able to spot a fake instantly. It's been said that some people learn from their experiences while others never recover from them. Which one are you? So we come to this book of Judges and we look at chapter 4. And this is the story of Deborah or the narrative of Deborah. But before this... There'd been a couple cycles already. Ehud, or Ehud, E-H-U-D, is one of the judges of the land. And uh, God had inspired him through the Holy Spirit to rise up and to help point the people in the right direction. As you heard, judges were not like uh, presidents, so, so to speak, but <coughs> they were spiritual leaders, they were military leaders, and they gave judgment on issues that would arise within the communities in which they oversaw. So a judge would take the law of Moses and make sure it was understood by the people so that if there was a judgment that needed to come down on any given issue, they were the specialists there. Uh, and Deborah was the judge during this time period. But Ehud eventually dies. There had been 80 years of peace up to that point. And listen to what happens in verse 1. After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. This is so heartbreaking, isn't it? There's 80 years of peace in the land. Ehud had kept everybody safe, had appointed them to God. Why do people need to be pointed to God? Why can't they just automatically take ownership of their own lives and do it for themselves? That's one of my questions. You know, and as a parent, we do this too. Like, well, do I have to keep going back to the same thing and telling you what to do? Take some responsibility. Take initiative. You ever said that as a parent? Take some responsibility. Take some initiative. I'm not always going to be here to point you in the right direction. So the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight again. And so the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. What does it mean that the Lord turned them over? 
You ever wonder? Similar to God hardening Pharaoh's heart in the book of Exodus. So does God go around and go, zap, you're hardened, and zap, I hardened your heart, and zap. Let me explain how God hardens hearts. If you push back and rebel against God enough, God will give you what you desire. Do you know what I mean by that? He'll leave you to your own devices. And the hardening of hearts is the withdrawal of God's presence. And when God withdraws his presence, he withdraws his provision. When he withdraws his presence, he withdraws his security and protection. So when it says in a, in a, in a setting like this that God handed them over, he basically said, I'm no longer going to protect you from your enemies. Uh, you want to continue to prostitute yourself and do stuff that the other nations are doing that I said before you came into the land not to do, fine. Then have it your way. You want it your way, fine. I will withdraw my presence because you're rebelling against me. You obviously don't want me around, so I'll withdraw my presence. And in essence, hands them over to a Canaanite king by the name of Jabin. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hegaim. Sisera, who had about 900 iron chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for how many years? 20 years. How many of you have not been alive for 20 years yet? A couple of you. You're like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to raise my hand. How many of you have been alive for 20, 40, 60, 80? All right, so a series of 20s, right? <clears throat> 20 years is a pretty long time. It's a pretty long time to sit under oppressive circumstances in individuals. After 20 years of this, guess what the people decide to do? God, help me! I'm surprised it took 20 years. Aren't you? Lest we get too hard on the Israelites, let's look at ourselves and our nation. Where are we? Are we at a God help me moment? Or are we just like, nah, it's not bad enough yet? Nah, we're fine. We'll wait. It's not really affecting my livelihood yet. I mean, I can still go out and eat. It's a little bit harder on the checkbook. I mean, it's not really bad yet. I'll wait until it gets really bad. And then I'll humble myself and pray. And maybe God will hear me. Now, nah, I don't think we're quite there yet as a nation, are we? We're not desperate enough for God. And so we're spiraling, much like the Israelites, into honestly degradation, deprivation, you name it. So Deborah, the wife of Lipidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at the time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. Now, what did she sit under? What was called the palm of Deborah. She was famous for sitting under this palm. Palms were actually a place of honor. Did you know the palm tree was actually an honorable thing? For Deborah to sit under a palm was to show that she was setting in honor. And so the author of this notes that she is a person of honor, sitting in a place of honor, making judgments on behalf of God for the people of God. And the people would come to her, not just women. Did you know men would come to her? Yeah. There's no women leader in the Bible. Anyway. One day, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, who lived in Kadesh in the land of Naphtali. She said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor. And I will call out Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors to the Kishon River. There, I will give you victory over him. So imagine... You have Sisera and his army, and they have how many chariots of iron? 900. 900. 
How many chariots do the Israelites have? None. This was actually important to understand. Chariots were like the, you know, the tanks of the day. <laughs> they were armored around the front. It was pulled by a horse. They could go very fast. If you were in a chariot, you have bows and arrows, spears, swords. You can wreak more havoc than standing alone as a foot soldier. Did you know that? Because you can get from one point to another very quickly. Now imagine 900 chariots on a battlefield with just a bunch of men in battle armor, which wasn't much in those days, to be honest with you, for the Israelites, and uh, spears and, and swords and, and some bows and arrows. Who is outnumbered and who has the edge of victory here? Obviously, Barak and his, or not Barak, but uh, Sisera and his army. So Barak, after he received the message from Deborah, what does he say? He says, I'll go, uh, I will go, but uh, uh, I'm sorry, let me back up. I did that wrong. I will call out Sisera's army, and then I, then I will give you victory over him. And Barak told her, she, he is the head of the Israelite soldiers. He says, I will go, but only if you go with me. This is important. Deborah, the judge, who sits under the palm of Deborah, judging what's going on in the land and offering uh, decisive uh, creeds to the people, she tells him to do something, and what does he say? Sure, I'll do it, but you have to go with me. Why do you think he says that? Women typically were not on the battlefield of the day. Did he know something about Deborah we don't know? Did he believe that he could win the battle without her there? No, he saw her authority and God's authority on her. And he said, God is with you, obviously, so if you go with me, then we will truly be successful. But he didn't believe her, did he? Because she told him already he would be successful. There was, slight, there was a slight amount of, a bit of doubt there for him. I will go, but only if you go with me. Very well, she replied. I will go with you, but you will receive no honor in this venture, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. That will come to play shortly. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, and at Kadesh, Barak called together the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 warriors went up with him. So Deborah also went. Now Heber, the Kenite, this, the Kenites were not a part of the Israelites. They were not a different tribe. The Kenites were a whole different group altogether. A descendant of Moses' brother-in-law, the Kenites were descendants of Moses' brother-in-law, Hobab had moved away from the other members of his tribe and pitched his, this is very be, pitched his tents by the, by the oak of Zanaim near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, he called for all 900 of his iron chariots and all of his warriors, and they marched from Harashiv Hagaim to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, get ready. Get ready. This is a day that the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle, and when Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into panic. Sisera leapt down from his chariot, and he escaped on foot, then Barak chased the chariots and the enemy army of all, all the way to Harasheth Hagaim, killing all of Sisera's warriors. Not a single one was left alive. <coughs> you know what's interesting here? If you read in Deborah's song, which is the next chapter, it says there was, a, there was basically a rainstorm. They're in this valley. This is the Kishon River that goes through here. And it was seemingly uncharacteristic for this time of year for rains to come, which is why Sisera said, sure, we'll bring our chair, we'll, we'll fight you. But Deborah chose the location. 
She chose the location knowing that God had all authority even over the heavens. And in the song that she sings a a little bit later, she gives tribute to God. Because there was a mighty rainstorm that came which flooded the river and made the ground soft so that the chariot's wheels sank in the mud. Threw them into chaos because they didn't know how to use these battle armaments under these conditions. So God bailed them out yet again. Meanwhile, Sisera ran to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because Heber's family was so friendly, was on friendly terms with King Jabin of Hazor. So Sisera is like, hey, I'm going to stop by the Kenites. The Kenites have always been good to my king, Jabin. <clears throat> they will welcome me and they will hide me. And he runs faithfully to this, this guy named Heber who had a wife named Jael. We don't know where Heber is, but we know where Jael is. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come into my tent, sir. Come in. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. Now you just get this picture. You just lay tight, little fella. You've had a rough day, haven't you? You, oh, come here. You just pinch your cheeks, get you all cozy and warm. Please give me some water, he asked. I'm thirsty. So she gave him some milk from a leather bag and covered him again. I read that, and uh, if you don't know the customs of the day, actually, this would have been a, a curdled milk, which was actually supposed to be really good. I don't know. Curdled milk in my fridge is not good. And it was in a leather bag. They didn't have refrigeration. Just think of that for a minute. Mm. Anywho, it wasn't even pasteurized. 2% skim, no. But this was actually a treat. So he asks for water. She gives him something better. But what do we give our kids at night just to get them to go to school? Well, back in my day, it was warm milk. Do you remember that? You know what she's doing? She's treating him with great hospitality in some way, but she's also lulling him to sleep. So she gave him some milk from a leather bag. That just does not sound appetizing. Covered him again. Stand at the door of the tent, he told her. If anybody comes and asks you if there's anyone here, say no. But then, but when Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, Jael quietly crept up on him. Toot, toot, toot. Toot, toot, toot. You hear the music in the background? <laughs> All right, right. She creeps up on him with a hammer and a tent peg in her hand. I wonder what she's going to do. I wonder what she's... What's she, what's she going to do? Oh, you're reading ahead. Stop reading ahead. <laughs> she, she said, oh my gosh. She creeps up on him with a mallet and a tent peg in her hand. And then she drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground. And lest you needed to hear this, it says, and then he died. Okay? I bet he had a horrible headache. <laughs> wow. All right. All right, here we go. When Barak came looking for Sisera, Jael went out to meet him. She said, Come, I'll show you the man that you're looking for. So he followed her into the tent. <laughs> Yikes! What did you do? That's not what he says. He follows her into the tent. And found Sisera lying there with the tent peg through his head, basically. So on that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin, the Canaanite king. And from that time on, Israel became stronger and stronger against, against King Jabin until they finally destroyed him. Um, oh, to be a fly on the tent that day. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you read the story of Ahud and and Judges chapter 3, just a chapter before this, 
Ehud comes into a king's chambers because she and, and he says, I need to speak with you privately. And so the king gets everybody out and he takes his dagger, which is about a foot and a half long, and he stabs this king in the belly. And the king is so fat and the, the stab is so deep that whenever Ehud pulls his hand back, the fat engulfs even the handle of this dagger in the fat so that you can't see the dagger anymore. Yeah, good times. Seriously, read it. It's not rated G, all right? What's the key point in all of this that we could take away today? Well, my hope is that you can learn in spite of our failings, God's kindness is often shown in his merciful rescue of us when we plead for his help. It took them 20 years to plead. But when they really sincerely confessed, repented, and said, Lord, help, God stepped in. He stepped in and he rescued them. And again, like last week, through some of the most unlikely of characters, do you remember what Deborah said to Barak? I'll go with you, but you will receive no honor for this victory because it will be at the hands of a woman. She wasn't talking about herself. Who was she talking about? Not even an Israelite, a Kenite. Would, would, reign, would give decisive victory by killing the commander of Jabin's armies. When you killed the commanding officer, you took the head off of any, any group in those days so that that remained the decisive victory. I want you to hear this. After 80 years of peace in the land, the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight again and as a result suffered 20 years of oppression. Um, what is it about a generation that can remain faithful to God, but the next generation can totally turn a blind eye? Why is that? I mean, because this is really the book of Judges. God raises up a leader to point them to him, inspires that person by the Holy Spirit to cast judgment, to give proper direction and that this person becomes a protector. And they're always saying, no, we can't do this because it runs against what God's commands are. We must do this because this is what God requires and desires of us. But then when that person dies, it's like a free-for-all. It's like when mom and dad go away for the weekend, leaving their teenagers at home, please don't have a party while I'm gone. Don't tear, come on, can I trust you? And so a leader of God dies, and then the people just run rampant, doing whatever the heck they please? There's nothing new under the sun, is there? We see this happening all the time in, 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 in every culture, in every subgroup within every culture. You have a good, solid leader who's pointing the way, and people are willing to follow that leader. And then what happens when the leader either dies or moves away or steps down from their position, what happens? A lot of times, the people go awry. Well, I guess I'm done here. I guess I, guess I could do whatever I want. This is what happens when a people don't take ownership for their own welfare. If you're always looking to some other person, what happens? There is a God beyond the individual who should reign, victor who should reign supreme and victorious in your life. It's not a man on a stage or in a white house or in the state house or any other house of authority. It's the one who sits on the throne as king of kings and lord of lords. Nations rise and fall, they always have within the course of human history. But there is one king and one kingdom that never, ever fades, nor will it. So why do people like this struggle when a person, another human being, dies 
Do they, do they forget the direction given them by that human leader to God? Do they forget the laws and the commands of God? See, that's a problem, I think, in many societies and cultures and even churches is that we don't take ownership for our own faith. We want to be told what to do. The nature of our country and our culture right now, we want our president to tell us what to do. And some of you say, no, I don't, not this one. But what about another one that you voted in? It doesn't matter who sits in there. We want them to tell us what's right and wrong when God has already told us. And the value judgments we, we make should be rooted in that. It should be rooted in the everlasting God and not in finite man. I asked you this earlier, what, what's, it, what's it take? What's it take for a people to be fully submitted and fully surrendered to the God of heaven and earth and to look to him as the author and perfecter of our faith to know what to do in any given circumstance or situation? What's it take? The second point is this, as a result of the 20 years of oppression, the people once again cried out for help. Listen to this. The sad reality is the Israelites should have known better. The Israelites had the information from their ancestors, it had either become, but it had either become outdated to them, they either disregarded it outright. I mean, it's just like, all right, I remember how uncool my parents were when I was a teenager and a young adult. I just do. My mom was so uncool. Mom, if you're watching this today, I don't think that anymore. You're pretty cool, all right? But they were so uncool. Their rules were so antiquated. Oh, right? I can't wait until I get out of here. I could do life on my own and make my own way. And I get out. At age 19, and I go a thousand miles away from home, and the stark reality of being a thousand miles away from home with nobody to bail me out but me hits me like a ton of bricks. It is not what I thought it was going to be. Well, who's going to pay for this? Who's going to do that? Who's going to make sure I wake up on time? Who's going to fill in the blank? Mom, will you call me every morning from Kentucky while I'm in Florida to wake me up? Give me a wake-up call. Mm-mm. Actually, my mom probably would have. She's just that kind of mom. Sure, honey, I'll do that. Anything else I could do? But I was too prideful at that point to receive any help from anybody because I was setting out to make it on my own. I was going to be under nobody else's rules. And I'm going to make my own way, pull myself up by my own bootstraps. It took me probably 10 years to my late 20s till I realized, okay, mom and dad weren't all that stupid. I mean, I may not have agreed with everything they did or said, but oh man, they were actually wiser than I gave them credit for. You see, I think this is what happens. So we want to break out and break free from the situations that we've, we've been in, thinking that the grass is going to be greener over there until we get over there. And we realize the way I was looking at the grass didn't show all the brown spots. Do you know what I'm saying? When I actually get over there and I'm able to look, I can look directly down. I'm like, oh, there's a patch there that I didn't see because the grass blades were hiding that brown spot. And you realize it's not ever greener on the other side. You got to grow where you're planted. You got to thrive where you are. You got to learn not only from your experience, but the experience of others who are ahead of you, who are saying, listen to me, what I'm telling you is truth. I've been there, done that. 
But there's a sense of pridefulness and sinfulness in each and every one of us that drives us so far away from that because we think we have the answers when we've never experienced true life. And so a generation falls away until it gets so bad that the next generation is like, this is horrible. We gotta do something about this. Oh God, help us. Because there's nowhere else to go. Everybody else who had been helping you up to that point is in as sour a position as you are and there's nobody else to run to. So they run to God. God never wants us to get to the point where we have to always beg for his mercy. He wants us to live in his grace. Do you understand that? He doesn't want us to get to the point where we have to beg for mercy. He wants us to live in his grace. And he provides it sweetly and freely. But not much has changed. When we watched that video a moment ago, and when you hear me talking about Deborah and the different generations and all that, does it sound eerily familiar to you? Does it? And maybe your own family units? Maybe, maybe it's not your family unit. Maybe it's your community that you live in or the state in which you live or, or maybe the country that you find yourself rooted in. Take a look around. Compare the United States with ancient Israel in the book of Judges. Both countries or nations are founded on the laws of Moses. Did you know that? This is what... <laughs> this debate going on. We're, we're not a Christian nation. I would agree. If you just look at the fruit that we're bearing, which isn't very good fruit at this moment, but we are rooted in Judeo-Christian values and principles. The laws of our land were derived from the laws of Moses. Did you know that? The laws of our land were derived from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words. When our founders were looking to uh, derive a constitution that was rooted in, in principles that are eternal, that, that are not made by men, they rooted them in Scripture. You, you can't go to D.C. today and not still see engraved on the marble edifices of many of our monuments Scripture. Thomas Jefferson, the Jefferson Memorial, I remember the first time I went in there because I had heard that Thomas Jefferson, or I'd been taught, oh my, he was a deist, which means, yeah, there's probably a God who created everything, but then he just left everything to kind of play out. Well, he didn't even believe in all the words of the Bible. He even comprised his own Bible. But you go into the Jefferson Memorial, it not only has quotes engraven on the, on the granite and marble edifices around that tundra there, quotes of Jefferson, which are actually biblical and focused on God, there's actual scripture engraved in there. Why? Because they believe so strongly in the values and the morals and the ethics of, of Judaism and Christianity that they knew that a nation built on those would be strong and would be sustained. But what happens with each successive generation that sees the Constitution or the morals of this land as antiquated and old and outdated and we need something new? See, the founders knew this. And this isn't a sermon on the founding of the United States. Please don't misunderstand me here. But as we read the book of Judges, it's so clear how similar our circumstances and experiences are. I can't help, as I'm reading through the book of Judges, to see, oh my gosh, I'm watching this play out right now. And it may not be you. Maybe you're not thinking at a national or federal level. Maybe it's just in your own personal life. I'm watching my family go through this cycle. My dad and my granddad and my great-granddad. I've watched this cycle happen in my life. The 
The further we've drifted from our founding and our moorings, the further we've devolved into a perversion of our true selves, which was once rooted in the worship of God in the Bible. Consider the words of just three of our founders. John Adams, the second president of the United States, said our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. When they used the word religion in the 1700s, they meant Christianity. Okay, Judeo-Christian, okay, religion. They weren't talking about Hinduism. They weren't talking about Buddhism. They weren't talking about Islam. They were talking, when they, when they mentioned religion, it was Judeo-Christian religion, okay? Listen to what he says. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It's, it is wholly inadequate for the government of any other which is why we're seeing the huge contrast today and the disregard for the Constitution and the Bill of Rights is because it's rooted in something that people see as antiquated. Some people do. What about Patrick Henry? <coughs> One of the ratifiers of the U.S. Constitution and a governor of Virginia, he declared, the great pillars of all government and social life are virtue, morality, and religion. This is the armor, my friend, and this alone that renders us invincible. What is he saying? Patrick Henry says, if we want to remain invincible, we need to be rooted in virtue, morality, and religion. Again, religion in those days, Judeo-Christian religion. We don't have to be invincible. And obviously, we're finding ourselves very quickly not as invincible as we thought we were. Noah Webster. Yes, that Webster legislator and schoolmaster to America. This is a guy who promoted public school education. I want you to you understand this. He believed that it was, it was foundational to a civil society for there to be education for all kids and not just certain select aristoc aristocracy. Listen to what he proclaimed. He says, our citizens should early understand that the genuine source of correct Republican principles is the Bible, particularly the New Testament or the Christian religion. And further, listen to what he declared. The Christian religion is the most important and one of the first things in which all children under a free government ought to be instructed. No truth is more evident than the Christian religion must be, uh, excuse me, no truth is more evident than that the Christian religion must be the basis of any government intended to secure the rights and the privileges of a free people. See, the Jews knew this. Yeah, the Jews knew this. The Christians knew this. Even though they were persecuted by the governments under which they lived until they became the state religion and then they corrupted everything. Well, let me take that back. They didn't corrupt everything, but they made a mess of things when they got sole authority and thought they were better than everybody else. And we knew this at one time. It's time to cry out to God to help for help once again. It just is. As individuals and as a nation, we must return to God in humility and do the first things over again. Finally, God, broke, uh, God brought deliverance to his people through three different people, Deborah, Barak, and Jael. The three dominant characters of this narrative that God used to bring liberation to the people of Israel each play a significant role in conquering the oppressive regime of King Jabin of Hazor. I know you probably don't feel like you make a difference. I'm just one person, Brandon. How can I change anything in my family? How can I change anything in my work environment? How can I change anything in the groups that I'm a part of? How can I change anything in my community? How can I change anything in the state in which I live? How can I change anything in the government? You can't. But God can. And if you are fully surrendered to God and you are seeking his face in all you do, through you, God can do amazing things. The problem is, I don't know if you're ever, if you hear this often, or if you believe it. God can bring deliverance, 
but deliverance comes to those who desire it. You hear me? And not desire it by their own means and own ways, but by his means and his ways. See, if we cry out to God, then God oftentimes will ask the question, do you really want to be delivered? Do you know what this means? It means you have to give up your desires, your rights, and everything else you've been holding on to and allow me to implant my purposes in you. Because I won't just take part of you, a little bit of you. You can't just surrender a little bit of your life or only portions of your, it's either all or nothing. And that's a big, of, it's, it's honestly too big of a price for many of us, which is why we don't see significant change, not only in our lives or in our families' lives, but in our communities. What if our churches truly believe that God is a deliverer and that a life fully submitted to him can make a difference in the world around them? What if you truly believe that? right? It should be a wow. But we don't believe it. We're much like Nazareth when Jesus went back to his hometown. It said he could do no miracles because of their lack of belief. We can bellyache and moan when we see the news reports and when we listen to the radio or watch TV and we see the world going to hell in a handbasket and we can just We can gripe and moan about it. We can do that with the best of them. I'm the best griper and moaner there is. (laughs) Trust me. But I, I should be the best prayer, the best surrenderer. We talked about this in my class this morning. What does it mean to surrender? When you think of the word surrender, what is it? I told them it's like I picture a stick with a little white flag, right? Uh, Kevin said it's giving up. When we surrender to God, we in essence are giving up. We're giving up our need to always be right, our need to always be first, our need to be anything or do anything. All right, God, I give up. And then God takes us captive then because we've surrendered to him. And instead of being thrown in a prison like a prisoner of war, (laughs) he elevates us to the status of child of God. And he says, you're exactly where I desired for you to be all along. You didn't realize you were in a prison when you were back there before you surrendered. But when you surrender to me and you become a slave to me, you get the keys to the kingdom. It took judges and the, it took the Israelites countless, countless times to realize that. And they, did you notice they devolve? If you read through the book of Judges, they start pretty good and then they end completely depraved. Did you notice that? They devolved into the baser thing that they had initially fought against. As our worship team comes forward, let me close with this. Pastor and author Wayne Cordero writes, we all will have two teachers in life, the teacher of wisdom and the teacher of consequences. It's what we learn from those two teachers and our responses to them that make all the difference in our long-term success or in our failure. The Israelites were a stubborn-hearted, ruthless, rebellious people. Until we get too, and again, unless lest we get too frustrated with them when we read their story, there should be a finger pointed back at us saying, oh, forgive us, God. The Israelites' tendency to stray from God and to compromise their character and integrity as his people, generation after generation, is an indicator all the more of their need of him in their lives. And God knew this. That's why he continually pursued them. He forgave them over and over again, and he showed them kindness, not only because of their cries for help, but also in spite of their cries for help. Jesus proclaims this in the Beatitudes as he says, God blesses those who are poor in spirit and realize their need for him. 
for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And even King David declared in Psalm 51, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Do you know when he was writing this? It was in repentance for his adulterous affair with Bathsheba and sending Uriah to be murdered on the front lines of battle. That's where this verse comes from. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. Where are you today? Are you living out this life of repentance and full surrender? Have you learned from your mistakes? Or are you repeating them over and over like a hamster on a wheel? You think you're going somewhere, but you realize you're not even moving. Though you're running and running and running, you're just stuck. I can stand up here from week to week and tell you God loves you, tell you God has a purpose for you, tell you that God has created you unique. But until you believe it, it'll never make a difference in your life. I can stand up here and point to stories of cycles of behavior that we can all relate to, but unless you're willing to step out of that and into something different, and I mean the different of God, then you're going to continue a cycle of behavior, a cycle of life that you despise. And you're going to wonder, God, why aren't things changing? Why aren't you doing something? And he's like, I've done everything I could do for you. I stepped out of heaven and into time. I took on a human body for you. I lived perfectly in the way that you should have so that you could have life. And you know what else I did? As I took your punishment. You deserved to die because you're sinful, you're broken, you're rebellious by nature, but I love you. And I was willing to take your punishment, to take the stripes, to take the nails. Because you weren't learning the lesson. By my stripes, though, you can be healed. By your belief in me, I'll give you eternal life. I'm pulling out all the stops. I'm making it as easy as I can. What are you going to do about it? Because I can't make that last step for you. You have a choice in the matter. And all it takes is just one step. Every time we take that one step, God is right there. After 20 years of evil, the people cry out, Oh God, I'm so sorry. Deliver us from evil. Okay, I got you. Let's do this together, but this time let's do it my way, okay? Who's leading you? Would you pray with me? Father, we know in vain we try to lead ourselves. I don't know what it is. It's human nature, the sinfulness of, of the, the draw to sin of this sinful nature that we war and wrestle against, as Paul says. It sometimes gets the better of us. We believe the lies of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy that tells us that it's up to us. God, you've done everything, however. You've done everything for us. And, and yes, the one thing that's up to us is a step in your direction. Even those of us who are believers in Christ still like to do things on our own and in our own way and in our own fashion. And yet we still haven't learned the lesson of doing it your way. 
some of us who have been believers our whole lives, who know what your word says, who have prayed to you. We know the truth, and yet we still try to do it on our own. Forgive us. And if no one else does, God, I cry out for mercy, not just to save me, but to save us as a people. We humble ourselves in repentance, God, as a nation, as a church, as individuals, crying out for your mercy once again. Forgive us, cleanse us, heal us, deliver us, I pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.